Welcome to the second of three episodes by Common Ground Berlin and Goethe Institute commemorating a century of German radio through interviews with radio icons around the world. I'm Dina Essayed, senior producer of Common Ground Berlin, and today we will hear from three people who've excelled in the news and entertainment industries on both sides of the Atlantic. They share a deep passion for radio, as we are about to hear. The first is a Berlin-based American screenwriter and producer whose Emmy and Peabody-winning works you might have seen on TV. Anna Winger's latest project is called Transatlantic, a seven-part series that debuted on Netflix earlier this year. The series is inspired by Julie Oranger's novel The Flight Portfolio and the experiences of Varian Fry, Mary Jane Gold and Albert Hirschman. They risked their lives to save over 2,000 Jewish and anti-Nazi refugees during the Second World War. But what is less known is that a walk with her dad in Berlin and a subsequent radio story he did provided the initial spark for Transatlantic. Tell us about this fateful Berlin story you heard from your dad, Anna. At the time I was producing a show for local NPR. There was a local NPR station in Berlin uh, for about maybe 10 years. And um, they they needed these pieces to go between the shows that were coming in from the United States, three, four minutes. And so they asked me if I wanted to produce a series of pieces for that space. And I what I did was I asked um, all kinds of writers to write about something they had witnessed or experienced or seen, a story, their own story, something that interested them in Berlin. And we had this crazy range of people doing, they wrote about so many things, you know, swimming, across the Spree to try and get into a club uh, right before it closed to, you know, Cold War stories, um, broken romances, and all kinds of stuff about history. And my father, who's an anthropologist, he wrote a number of pieces for us, actually, that were about the street names and about who was Hans Beimler, you know. And in this case, he wrote one about who was Varian Fry. Um, there was a Varian Freistrasse and still is here in Potsdamer Platz, and the story of Varian Fry was was the basis for me to start researching a TV show yeah, about Varian. Why did you turn this idea and this conversation with your dad into a radio story? Well, you know, when I was making Berlin Stories, when I was producing that radio series, I would always be listening for interesting things that people told me that would make a good story. So if someone who was a writer, and in some cases they weren't even writers, but most most were actually professional writers, would tell me something, I would think, oh, that would make a really good one. And what he told me was so surprising because actually it's like, I like to say it's the greatest story never told. Like it was this amazing act of courage and this, you know, all these young people coming together to save, you know, famous artists and intellectuals who really had no way out. It was just an incredible story that deserved to be told. So I asked him to write a Berlin story about it, which he did. And that was the beginning of thinking about making it into a TV series. And let's backtrack to your childhood. Was radio important to you and your family when you were growing up? So I'm the daughter of anthropologists. My parents always took my brother and me with them when they were traveling for work. Um, They did field work in many places um, that were quite remote. And there was very little access to um, 
anything but the radio. You know, we, we certainly never went to the movies or watched TV. But everywhere there was local radio, like when we were living in Kenya, we listened to a lot of um, BBC World. And when we were living in Mexico, I remember there was one station that broadcast American Top 40, like Casey Kasem's American Top 40. And at the time I was, you know, in middle school and it was like the high point of my week was to hear all this pop music. And I would wait with my tape recorder to press, you know, record when when songs that I liked would come on the radio. And then later, uh, I'm a photographer. That was my profession for most of my adult life before I started writing and writing television. And I would spend, you know, eight, 10 hours in the darkroom at a time printing when I was in my 20s and 30s. And NPR, public radio, was my best friend. I mean, I, I would come out, sometimes I would listen to so much NPR that I would listen to the cycle coming back again at the end. You know, I'd be listening to so much that I would get to the news coming back. You know, the, they would start to replay the, the same broadcasts. Um, and, you know, talk radio, and now I listen to a lot of podcasts. You know, it's such a, it has always been a big part of my daily life. Um, I never, thankfully, had a commute, like a car commute. But when I am in the car, I listen to radio. But I try not to be in the car <laughs> if I can avoid it. But um, but I do, I've always found it very relaxing to hear people talking about something interesting. So, yeah, I've been, radio has been a big part of my life from the beginning. You just mentioned podcasts. What are you listening to these days? And have your children grown up listening to radio since it's a big part of your life? It's funny that you say that because one thing I've noticed about um, music, like the absorption of music, um, you know, I used to hear new music on the radio. That's how you heard it, you know, whether it was in the car or at home. The radio was always on and you'd hear a new song. You'd want to know what that was. There was no other way to find anything new. Then there was MTV. You'd hear, watch music videos. But really, radio was the source of information when it came to, like, pop music. Um, and one thing I noticed, because my kids listen to things on Spotify and Apple Music, wherever it is that they're listening to music, they don't hear new music as much. They don't really experience listening to something that they didn't choose, right? Everything is now sort of the algorithm is designed to bring you the things that you want and you like, but not to expose you to new music. So they don't, unless I play something for them or someone else plays something for them deliberately, they don't naturally hear music they didn't choose. And that's a really different way of... Um, of coming into music than I had it. Because for me, it was like you just listen to the radio and new things would play all the time on the radio. And um, I think that's one of the problems with like on-demand content is that it's not, it doesn't, it sort of limits the process of discovery either because you only watch the or listen to the things you choose or because the things that are fed to you by the algorithms are things that you would already like as opposed to things you don't know you would like. You know, there was just something really democratic about the radio. It was like you just kind of heard the things you liked and the things you didn't like, and eventually you discovered new things that way. The news is another thing, right? Like people now hear the news they pursue, but not necessarily objective news. And there was something about when you listen to the radio regularly, you would hear news breaks. So everybody was kind of informed about the same things. And without that, you know, kind of morning news hour or like news breaks that happen at the top of the hour, like that sort of interrupt pop music to tell you about something. I mean, no one's interrupting what you're listening to on Spotify to bring you the news, right? Just so, the ads. Just the ads. 
So it really depends. I get what's positive about on-demand content. I obviously make on-demand content, and I think the Spotify algorithm is pretty incredible in terms of how it feeds me things that I would like. Like, they know me. You know, it's it's very good. However, um, the process of discovery is, is definitely limited. We talked about your dad's episode for Berlin Stories. What led you to do that radio series more than a decade ago for NPR? At the time, I had just started writing. I was working as a photographer, and I had written a few essays about my life in Berlin for the New York Times. And the guy who was in charge of NPR Worldwide was in the city, and he we had a meeting, and he asked me, like, how about you write about yourself for the radio? You know, we really like the pieces you've written for the Times and the Times Magazine. You could do something like that for the radio. And I was like, mm, I don't know if I want to, if I have enough to say about my life But what if I were to get other writers to write about their lives and their experiences and we were just to do it as a kind of rolling, you know, record of of different people's experiences. And then they were all, you know, pieces that were read by the writers who wrote them. So it was a little bit like StoryCorps or something, except for that it wasn't an interview. It was like people, there was an editorial process. People wrote essays. We edited them for radio to get them the script down to the right length and that they were clear and easy to say. They would practice them. And then we would do, we would record them in batches at various recording studios around Berlin. It was really fun. We did it for like maybe five years, six years. And um, over time, we probably did 200 pieces or something like that. And they were all really different. But one thing that's kind of funny is I never wrote one. (laughs) Do you have a favorite? It was about how she swam across the Spree to get into Bar 25, which was a club that no longer exists but was kind of legendary. (laughs) And it was just a really good piece. That one really stayed with me. But people wrote about amazing things that happened to them. And then unfortunately, the whole archive lived on the website that doesn't exist anymore. And I should have somehow downloaded it all to one place. So I only have about half of them like on my computer. But she's still a wealth if they're yeah. all of the same caliber swimming yeah. in the spray well. <laughs> to reach the club. Let's peak Berlin. <laughs> Has radio influenced other works that you've done? I've made two historical TV shows. One is called Deutschland 83, and it takes place in the 80s. And one was transatlantic. And in both cases, radio played a real role in the fabric of the show in terms of bringing in the news. Because, you know, in the past, in the 1940s and 30s, that's literally how people got all their information. um, Because already stuff in the newspaper was much later than than in. It took a long time for that to get published. Uh, The radio was crucial in bringing people information. They also, and that was also true in the Cold War, it was really important. It was also a really powerful tool because they started broadcasting radio from the West over into the East. You know, they couldn't really stop the radio waves. So there was a way, it was a way to reach an audience that you wanted to, it was like a kind of friendly fire, you know, a way of of kind of using soft diplomacy to reach people on the East side of the wall. I love the stories of how when the Americans first arrived in Paris, after they took Paris back from the Nazis, how they started broadcasting American radio. And these stories like how they had André Breton speak to the French people in a voice that they recognized. Um, You know, I find these things really moving, how a voice can be familiar, how it can give you the sense of being at home, how important language is. I think radio narrative has influenced a lot of the work that I've done. So, okay, so another thing about radio that has always really interested me in terms of it, 
the narrative possibilities is the way it's been used in spy drama, like, or the way it's been used to communicate information secretly. I've been working recently on a project that's set in the struggle against apartheid, and they used radio a lot to communicate. You know, it's, it's sort of like hiding in plain sight, right? Like radio was broadcast all over the world, but if you were using the right kind of music, you were using the right kind of there's certain codes, saying certain phrases, there was ways of communicating um, information. And something we used in Transatlantic that was fun was that they used the first few bars of Beethoven's Fifth to basically communicate French resistance messages on the radio. And whenever you heard Beethoven's Fifth, like dun 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 dun, it was the beginning of these kind of nonsensical poems, surrealist poetry, which actually had hidden messages in them. And um, I think that kind of thing is really cool. So there's a lot of radio stories still yet to tell, even if people and if people aren't doing it now, then all those stories are just waiting for, for us to tell them. And you asked me earlier about podcasts, and I do listen to a few podcasts regularly. Some of them are NPR shows that I used to listen to on the radio, like Fresh Air and The Business. But I also listen regularly to um, Mark Marin, like WTF, I think his interviews are really good. At the beginning, I found his personality kind of annoying. But now I'm like, what happens with the cats? Like, it's really strange how he's grown on me. Um, you know, I think there's a lot of podcasts. But for me, if I what I really like is the ones that tell you, like, that are limited. So it, it's like they do a research into a particular time period or subject. And you can listen to six, eight episodes and get a full download about something that interests you. I'm listening to one now about Riot Girl that was done by Oregon Public Radio, and which is like, it was. it's about music in the early 90s, uh, women who were in rock bands. It's just really good. You know, it's a way of learning something, but kind of as if you're having a conversation about it with people who really know a lot about it. So yeah, I mean, podcasts are cool, but it's still different from listening to the radio because that process of discovery or hearing something that you didn't intend to hear is not the same. That brings me to my last question. Um, the series we are interviewing you for commemorates a century of German radio. Do you think radio still plays an important role in society at large? I don't. I mean, how do I put this? I think podcasts do. I think people are still absor like listening to oral content. But other than in the car, I don't hear the radio playing very often. You know, you just... I. There aren't a lot of the radio used to be on in every shop. It was on in many workplaces. You know, we listened to it first thing in the morning when we woke up in the morning. I mean, Morning Pro Musica, which is a classical music program in the United States, I think it was like the soundtrack of my early part of my day uh, throughout my education in the U.S. It's not that I don't think it's relevant, but I don't think it's reaching people in the same way. And I want to be clear that I'm talking about like living in a first world city, right? Or whatever you want to call Berlin. <laughs> I'm guessing that if you travel to the kinds of places that I lived as a child when we were, when I was doing field work with my parents, I'm guessing that the radio still plays more of an important role on the road, you know, like a little bit outside city centers and stuff. Certainly we spend the summers in Maine, which is a, kind of rural part of the United States and radio there is more important than it is here. You know, because people spend so much time in their cars, they listen to the radio, even just to get weather updates and traffic updates. These are things you can't get anywhere but the radio, right? So if you have a reason to plug in, and I think drivers have a lot more of a reason than people in the city, 
then I think it probably does play a more significant role in their lives. Our next guest started on air long before many of us were born and is a Berliner who is a pillar of radio culture in the German capital. Die Rick Delia Show. He is a 76-year-old disc jockey and moderator at Berliner Rundfunk and Radio Bob. I asked Rick, who's a Milwaukee native, whether radio played an important role in his family life. Yes and no. I raised the kids for a while alone, my two oldest kids. So um, they would like come into the studio and they learned when the red light is on, don't say anything. And so they sort of grew up with radio, which on the one hand made it unimportant to them because like we grew up with this. On the other hand, I remember when my son was in kindergarten, uh, one of his friends was saying, oh, I, I never get to see my dad enough. And Billy told him, well, why don't you just turn on the radio? You can listen to him <laughs> because kids think everybody's parents do the same thing. <laughs> um, I mean, up until today, I'm still working at two radio stations doing daily shows, it's an accepted part of our life. You know, dad's on the radio. And what about when you were young? Were you listening to the radio when, when you were young? All like, the you time. Have... I had no brothers or sisters, and my family was the radio. I listened every chance I had. If I wasn't at school or playing basketball, I was listening to the radio. I knew the names of all the disc jockeys, All these groups in those days, like 50s music, doo-wop groups and early soul music, sort of uh, took the place of my family. I had no idea what was going on with radio. I had no idea how that worked. When the guys, when they'd sing the name of the station, I thought, you know, there's like singers in the corner and the disc jockey points his finger at them <laughs> and it's time for them to sing. Uh, this was like real 50s radio. It was... Uh, Great stuff to listen to, and I was just a radio freak, always. You enlisted in the Air Force at the age of 17. How did that lead you to doing radio? My first radio job was at KTFM in San Antonio, Texas. I was working at the base newspaper in San Antonio, Texas at the School of Aerospace Medicine, and KTFM was a radio station that concentrated on military employees, civil servants. And they had this program where they did little um, news shows about what was happening at the different air bases. And so I did the um, Brooks Air Force Base School of Aerospace Medicine news thing for KTFM. And that was the first radio stuff I ever did. You also did a stint in Alaska, right? Uh, when I was stationed in Alaska, we were in a... Uh, hospital that was off base in the middle of the woods. There was not much going on. It was expensive and boring. And the hospital had its own radio station for anybody who wanted to drop by and be a disc jockey. <laughs> so I'd walk down to the basement of the hospital and play records for nobody, just for me. Right. And do you think you would have turned to radio as a career without the military experience? Or was this some sort of a catalyst for you? I doubt it. Because the whole way I got in, really got involved in radio is the base newspaper had an advertisement in it. We're looking for uh, radio and television moderators for the American Forces Network. I was a, a medic 
which was okay, but it wasn't anything that I really loved to do. It was like, okay, this is my job. But I saw this and I said, God, to work on radio and television, that would be <laughs> that would be so great. And so I did a demo tape and they accepted me. And they sent me to the school where they trained all military radio and television people. And it was a great school. The class was 12 weeks long. And on day one, you started doing radio shows for the next six weeks. That's a steep and, learning curve. And yeah. after the six weeks were up, you started doing TV shows for the next six weeks. So you were like, you had weeks and weeks of actual on-air experience before they ever let you out of there. And so I uh, you know, learned real quick because I was really excited about being there. Uh, if I hadn't have had that, nah, I don't know if I ever would have got around to getting in radio or television. Did your hosting or DJing style change in the different countries you were stationed in? No, uh, they changed over the years as I got smarter and better. You know, like most other disc jockeys, uh, radio moderators, you have sort of a role model. Boy, I'd like to sound like that guy, or I'd like to sound like her. And so you tend to sort of imitate them as you're going along trying to find your own style. And so... Um, I never really changed because of the country I was in, except in Germany when I started broadcasting in German, <laughs> which naturally changed my whole world. And when and how did you end up in Berlin? Um, the Air Force sent me here. I was uh, stationed in West Germany. After I left Southeast Asia and Thailand, I was the last broadcaster to leave Thailand, actually. We're supposed to be gone by Christmas 1975. And in April of 1976, I left because they needed somebody to help pack up all the radio and television stations. And then they sent me to Germany and I was in West Germany and I was like, no, I don't like this very much. How do I get out of here? And the guy at the personnel office said, well, we have we have an opening in West Berlin at the AFN station there. And I thought, "Okay, another year in West Berlin and I'm out of here and it can't be worse than West Germany. And they sent me here, and as of day one, I fell in love with this place, literally as of day one. I had the chance to keep extending my time here because the Air Force in those days had a point system, and you had more points if you were in a, a combat zone than if you were in a normal base. And the war was over, so nobody could get as many points as I did. I spent four and a half years in Southeast Asia. And so I stayed here until my 20 years in the Air Force was up and then transferred over to uh, German radio. I was reading that you are one of the longest serving hosts on the Berlin Airwaves. And of course, not only did the radioscape in Berlin change, but the whole of Berlin has completely transformed since you started um, working <laughs> here. So how yeah. has that affected the way you do your radio work or has it at all? So the station I was working at was in West Berlin, but we were broadcasting to East Germans. It was a joint venture for the German government and the USIS, United States Information Service. So we were in West Berlin, but our signal went all over East Germany mm -hmm. and obviously East Berlin. When the wall came down, it was a game changer, obviously, because... During the time that from 84 to 89, 
if you listen to our radio station, you could be put in jail. And there were people put in jail for listening to the propaganda zender in West Berlin. When the wall came down, it was like, whoa, all of a sudden, everybody could listen to us, and they did. One thing you have to understand is that German radio in the 80s was very, very conservative. Our station, Rias 2, was the first radio station in Germany to play pop music 24 hours a day. And this is like 1984. So everybody wanted to listen to us. And when the wall came down, they could even say they were listening to us, which is great for your ratings. <laughs> uh-huh. And so um, I doubled the audience, uh, you know, overnight. At the same time, the East Germans had to stop. Um, they had jammers on to jam our frequency in different areas of East Germany. So they had to stop the jammers. They took them down. Actually, we got we drove off and got one of the jammers and put it in the lobby of the radio station. <laughs> so when people walked in, they could see this uh, East German jammer. Huge thing. Must have been three feet high, four feet across. Really evil-looking Star Wars thing that kicked us off the air. When I first moved to Berlin, I started to listen to your um, your show on Berliner Rundfunk. And for me, as a sucker for 80s music, this was the world for <laughs> me. And it was a launching pad for my interest in, in listening to more German content on the radio. And I always loved to listen to your introduction. And I wanted to ask you, how did you come up with your signature on-air introduction, the Alte Ami? Oh, that's a little hard to explain in English. But when we started Rias Slide, which was this pop music station in 1984, I had already retired from the Air Force. So I was like 36, 37. And everybody else at the radio station was like 20 or 21 years old. <laughs> and when you're 20, anybody who's 36 is old. And there was a meeting going on. And one of the um, editors was late, friend of mine, Brigitte. And she came through the door and, I, and I'm like, hey, Brigitte, what the hell? You know, we've been waiting here since forever. And she says to me, the alte army halt die Klappe, which is German for, hey, old American, shut your mouth. And I said, Jesus, if everybody's laughing at this, it must be a great nickname. At the same time, my wife, who's a Berliner, always used to say, still does, on the telephone when she calls somebody, hi, Ikebins, which means, hello, it's me, but with a Berlin accent. And so I put the two of them together and started the next day going, hi, Ikebins, Alta Ami, Rick Delisle. And, and that's how that thing started. And I've been using that now since 1984, which is, uh, or 85, a long time. And since nobody can pronounce my last name because it's French <laughs> and it's easier to remember nicknames, uh, I just became the Alta Ami, which is uh, great, actually. Is it still something that um, listeners use when they address you? Were there any funny yeah. or memorable situations yeah. that resulted from having this memorable nickname? Usually when I, if anybody recognizes me, they'll just say, hey, Rick, how you doing? which is very un-German because Germans are mostly formal if they don't really know anybody really well, you know. It's this Z and do thing uh, that they have with the language. Mm -hmm. And so for me, it's like a compliment. 
when somebody comes up and doesn't talk to me in the, in the formal Oak Deutsch, it's like, hey, this person thinks they know you or feels like they know you, which is, you know, one of the best compliments a disc jockey could have. I run into people all the time who now in the meantime, I mean, I'm 76 years old. I've run into people who, you know, grew up listening to my radio show, which is great, actually. And uh, and so, you know, I'm still on the air every day. So it's like they're like, oh, OK, the world hasn't blown up yet. The old dude is still on the radio. Uh, I mean, I'm sure there's lots of people who are going, when's this guy going to piss off because we're tired of listening to him? But at least up until now, it's been a successful run. It's the entertainment business without having to be an entertainer because nobody sees you. Yes. And uh, I think this brotherhood of radio broadcasters is uh, a definite plus. It's a shame that so many people now are going to... Uh, YouTube or podcasts or blah, 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 blah. Because, yes, I understand that. This is uh, 2023. Aside from everything else, what they miss out on is this sort of family feeling from working in a radio station. Do you still listen to the radio yourself? Yes and no. I, I'm kind of picky now. Radio has lost the ability to deliver a personality to me. As far as I'm concerned, there's audio, that's music and information, and there's radio, that's personalities who entertain me. And uh, the trend is, for years now, away from personalities and into content and lots of other things that uh, make money, which is okay. It's gotten professional and it's a moneymaker now, but it's just not that thing, you know, This jockeys that I grew up with in the 50s can never be beat. These guys were crazy. They looked for crazy people who didn't want to make much money and let them be on the air. You know, that is not the case these days. I may be the only crazy person left in German radio. <laughs> What do you listen to if you were to listen to the radio these days? Mostly oldies, 50s music. I've got a couple of doo-wop stations on my internet radio that I listen to. There's a, uh, a syndicated version of Wolfman Jack that I like to listen to, one of the best disc jockeys in the entire world. And there's uh, internet versions of American Bandstand with Dick Clark, which I think is interesting. And when I'm really feeling in a dangerous mood, I'll listen to Nights with Alice Cooper. <laughs> Alice does a worldwide radio show, and I like to listen to it. Do you think there is still a future for radio music or music in radio? Um, yeah, if they put a couple of personalities on the air. Radio has no chance of beating anybody with the music. Just forget about it. You need personalities. And there are certainly few personalities on air like Rick Delisle. You can hear him on his shows at Berliner Rundfunk 94.1 FM and Radio Bog via the internet. Our last guest is in Washington, D.C. Her name is Lulu Garcia Navarro, and she describes herself as an audio journalist. But the award-winning former host of NPR's Weekend Edition Sunday, who was a long-time foreign correspondent for the U.S. Public Radio Network, is so much more. 
The 52-year-old has more recently taken her passion for audio to the opinion section of the New York Times. I asked Lulu about her childhood. I was born in London and I grew up in Miami, Florida. We are of Cuban and Panamanian descent. My family left Cuba during the revolution in 1959, and they became essentially political refugees. We're six kids and we're all born in different countries. And I think I always tell this story because it's about basically how a sort of diaspora spread across the world when you kind of lose your home. And so, yeah, my siblings were born, one in Cuba, one in Panama. I was born in London. I have another sibling that was born in Spain, um, another one in Florida. So we kind of are the map of our family's journey. Did radio play a role in your life growing up in all of these no. places? No, no, radio didn't. You know, radio is a big part of Miami and Cuban culture in Miami. So Radio Martí, you know, other sort of radio stations where you'd get political news. But I was too young for all that, you know. I mean, I would definitely hear it and absorb it, but it wasn't a part of my life because I grew up in the Gen X era where all of a sudden you had Walkmans. <laughs> and like all young people uh I was more interested in the new than the thing that was already there. So sure, we would listen to the radio in the car, uh, but I didn't grow up absorbing news, for example, and journalism from the radio, even though my family members did. And it was definitely a part of the fabric of my life, but it wasn't anything that I knew anything about. What about your daughter today? Does she uh, listen to radio or does radio play a role in her life? Well, she has to listen to the radio because we listen to the radio still uh, in the car. We listen to NPR, which is my former employer. And so she finds it super boring. And she has told me that on numerous occasions. Uh, you know, there is a whole culture of the backseat child who is forced to listen to public radio in the United States and then grows up to be a radio lover and an informed citizen of the world. That has yet to be my experience with my 10-year-old daughter. You know, she likes all the things that kids her age like, which is YouTube, which is TikTok. Uh, she is a visual person, and so she absorbs information that way. And why did you become a radio journalist? It's an interesting story because it wasn't by design. I ended up in London again after I finished university in the United States. And I was at loose ends. I didn't know what I wanted to do. I was working at an advocacy organization. And I spent a lot of my time in that advocacy organization trying to get things in the news. And so I realized that actually I was less interested in advocating for things to be in the news. I was more interested in being in the news business myself. And I didn't know how to go about doing that. And so I ended up going back to school. And in the United Kingdom, there is a wonderful school called City University, which has sort of the premier journalism program. And it's a one-year program, unlike the United States. It's a vocational program in the United Kingdom journalism is seen less in the lofty ways that it's seen in the United States and more just as something you have to learn, like a journeyman. And that really appealed to me. But they didn't have a television program, which is what I was actually interested in. So I ended up going to City University in London and going to journalism school. And I was interested in broadcast, but they did not have a television studio or a television program. They had radio. And 
I had never thought of radio. Radio was not a thing in sort of journalism schools <laughs> in the United States, which I'd also been looking at while I was considering embarking on a career in journalism. But the United Kingdom had this wonderful history of audio journalism started, of course, by the BBC. And I was interested in international journalism. I'd spent sort of a couple years traveling around after I graduated university teaching English in Asia and Latin America. And so I was really interested in international journalism. And the BBC just all of a sudden was like this incredible organization that I had not really thought about in that way. I listened to radio in the United Kingdom. I listened to Radio 4. I listened to the World Service. But I hadn't thought about it as a career or a craft. And then all of a sudden, I ended up going to this school, which only had radio. And I just fell in love. I fell in love immediately. Lulu, you're an award-winning broadcaster who spent more than two decades covering conflicts on four continents. Is radio reporting difficult in a war zone? And what are the advantages and disadvantages to covering wars on and for radio? Yeah, you know, it's interesting you keep on using the word radio. You know, now we use audio because, of course, the world of audio journalism, which encompasses radio journalism, has become so vast with podcasts really kind of coming to the forefront. But of course, when I got started, I was doing radio journalism. And that was really the only way to get audio journalism into the ears of people. And it was complicated in the beginning, um, just getting your audio back to where it would be broadcast was a very old-fashioned system. You know, this was the age of satellites. And for TV, you would, you know, feed your images through satellite broadcast. But for audio, that just wasn't the case. And so you still had these weird phone systems where you'd plug in <laughs> your recorder to the landline through a doohickey and sort of feed it down the line. And the quality wasn't very good. You know, you were sometimes just literally kind of phoning in reports. And so the quality was variable. You had to be very ingenious in the way that you kind of got your product back to the headquarters. But I always loved it because you could have real conversations with people in a way that was immediate. So not like print where you're just sitting there with a notebook and you're not necessarily capturing the immediacy of the environment. And it's not as intrusive as a camera where all of a sudden, you know, you have a camera in someone's face and there's usually a producer there holding a microphone. And then there's the journalist asking the questions. It's very hard, especially in conflict areas for people to not think about a camera. But I found when you just have a microphone and I would hide my recorder often, and I would use quite a small microphone, you could have that intimacy. They could forget for a moment that you had a microphone in their face and you could interact human to human. I think that that gave a real richness to the kind of audio that I was able to capture, the places that I was able to get into where other people might not have been able to get into, and the ability to really capture a moment through sound that really, I think, makes audio just really special, especially in war zones. Do you have a favorite or most memorable radio or audio story that you can share with us? Wow. I've done a lot of stories. And as I get older, I reorder the things that I think are important because what you sometimes think was really important 
while you were doing it becomes less important in hindsight, or history will show it to be less important. So I would say going to the Amazon rainforest, documenting that destruction firsthand, it sounds now kind of funny that you would think at the time that maybe it wasn't a super important story, but I had to really fight to get that story and series on air. And it got a lot of awards. But at the time, you know, it just felt like, yeah, okay, yeah, the Amazon rainforest, whatever. And I think when I was younger, it felt like all the wars that I was covering were the most important things that I could possibly be covering, because what could be more important than war? And now that I've done so many of them, and I see how quickly nations, invading nations, kind of, (laughs) and the media that follows them move on from those conflicts, I would say that maybe that's less of an important legacy. Lulu, you are a strong supporter of diversity and feminism. Do radio and audio journalists and networks do enough to reach those audiences? Why or why not? No, no, I, I don't think they do. I think it's an existential crisis. But I think, you know, the real problem here is that the media and journalism writ large is actually in a profound moment of collapse. If you look at what is happening, you're going to see that radio itself, how people get their news, audio journalism, journalism with just a full stop, there is no, at the moment, viable, sustainable, thriving business model that makes this work. And so what the heads of news organizations will tell you often is that it is imperative to bring in the next generation and that is a more diverse generation and that the reason that we're not thriving is that we failed from engaging these audiences. Um, we've betrayed them in some ways, we've ignored them in some ways and that's because many of the newsrooms historically have been white and overwhelmingly male. I will say that that is changing, that has changed in the last decade. I am proof of that. The problem is that it's too late. I think it's too late now. Fundamentally, the younger generation doesn't trust us, has moved on to getting their information in a different way. And I think that we need to figure out a better way to meet the next generation where they're at because... They're getting their news from TikTok now, from people who aren't journalists, who aren't trained to be journalists, who don't even understand what it means to be a journalist. And so we have done a very poor job of explaining that you need fact-checking, that you need a different set of eyes on what you're putting out into the world, and the value of that, and why it matters to have factual information. I mean, we're losing the information war, and we are the purveyors of information. You left the radio industry, or NPR, to join the New York Times Opinion Podcast team, where you've done some amazing interviews, like the one with the American special education teacher, who was thinking about carrying a gun in her classroom. Do you think radio will be replaced by podcasting or other on-demand mediums? I think it has been. (laughs) I think it has been. I think the radio listenership is declining dramatically. Where a lot of people do their listening is in cars. We saw that during the 
pandemic where, for example, the most robust radio network for news in the United States, which is NPR, saw declines of 30%, which is unprecedented, unprecedented in the history of the medium. And so it's a moment where everyone is trying to figure out how to get terrestrial radio to matter in the way that it has before. And I think many people will tell you that it just won't. And they are desperately trying to figure out what comes next, because the problem with on demand, and we're seeing this, by the way, in every single space, um, we're seeing this in streaming, uh, for the big networks, and for the movie studios, uh, we're seeing this in print and the move to digital. The problem with on demand is that Again, it's very difficult to monetize. It's very difficult to capture the audience. The reason that radio works and has worked for so long is that you have, in a way, a captive audience that is in a car or might be doing something at home, and that is the way that they're going to be receiving information. Once you allow that to kind of spread out to being able to use your phone and being able to use your smart speaker. And there's all these different ways of getting the audio experience. You're no longer going to have that audience. And that audience is also going to be like, hey, why am I going to do this when I can also do that? They have a lot of things competing for their attention. So what the radio networks have found themselves with, they're not only just competing now with um, other radio networks. They're not even competing anymore with podcasts and that experience. They're competing with Netflix. They're competing with YouTube. They're competing with everything, if you think on a typical day, that vies for our attention. And so it's hard. It's a hard moment, I think, because I do think we're seeing the demise of the terrestrial radio uh, experience. You were Weekend Edition Sunday's host for four years, the first Latina host, if I'm not mistaken, that NPR had. Do you miss hosting? I sure do. Of course I do. I think there's nothing like it. Um, there's a real buzz that comes with having a live experience where it's you and the microphone and millions of people tuning in. And I want to be clear, NPR's audience is still vast and huge. If you think a successful podcast normally has listenership in the hundreds of thousands, NPR still pulls in millions of people to listen to it all the time. I think the joy of live broadcasting is unparalleled. I don't miss the clock. You know, in live broadcasting, we are tied to this clock that ticks and all of a sudden you run out of time and it doesn't matter where you are in an interview um, or how good that interview is or if that person is about to tell you the most amazing thing. When the clock goes to zero, you're out. And so there is a real kind of excitement to that. There's a real power to that. But having moved into the on-demand audio space, I have to say there's a real pleasure to be able to just make an interview as long as it needs to be, as opposed to fitting into that, you know, the tyranny of the clock. But by the same token, as a host, 
you know, that's where your skill comes in. You know, you have to be quick. You have to be incisive. You have to learn how to move a guest on from something that might be boring to something that might be more interesting to the listener. So you learn a lot being a live host in a way that is, you know, really, really empowering. That was Lulu Garcia Navarro of the New York Times, who we reached via Zoom in Washington, D.C., I'm Dina El-Sayed of Common Ground Berlin, and thank you for listening. Our third and last installment of our project with Goethe Institute commemorating a century of German radio will be available next month, so stay tuned. Common Ground Berlin's host is Soraya Sarhadi Nelson. We'd also like to welcome Maya Ravlik to our team. She will be interning with us over the next few weeks. Our podcast is funded by a grant administered by the German Ministry for Economic Affairs and Climate Action. And our partners, in addition to Goethe Institute, are the German Marshall Fund of the United States and Checkpoint Charlie Foundation. All of our episodes are available wherever you get your podcasts. And you can follow us on Instagram, Facebook and Twitter at CG Berlin Podcast. <laughs>